The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We're glad you found us. This is UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran come back in time with me it's 1976 now if you go to a health food store you can find some shampoo and some soap that's cruelty-free, but the only kind of color cosmetics, the only kind of makeup that anybody can get anywhere is beauty without cruelty. It's nice stuff, but it's made in the UK and it's not distributed in the US. Well, somebody needs to do it. Why not me? So I started a company, meaning I gave it a name, People's (laughs) pause. And I started importing beauty without cruelty from the UK. But the very first day when I was expecting my big shipment, I got a call from the customs office. They said, there is an irregularity. Now, I'm 26 years old, very naive. I know nothing about business. And when somebody official said irregularity, I thought, oh my God, federal prison, how will I ever get the food that I eat there? (sighs) Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Podcast. And people's paws didn't last very long, but thank goodness, cruelty-free cosmetics are more, much more widely available around the world than they were before. But it's very surprising to know that a lot of companies still do these archaic tests. And a lot of countries require them. And even those that don't allow them, at least many do. 
So we are going to find out in this half hour exactly what is going on there and what is being done to fix it. So I am so happy to be welcoming our guest, Monica Engelbretson, and she is with Cruelty Free International. In fact, she is their head of public affairs for North America. Now, Cruelty Free International, if you're an old timer like me, you'll remember that they used to be the BUAV, the British Union for the Abolition of Vivisection, founded in 1898. Oh my goodness, even I don't go back that far. Cruelty Free International has been working around the world to end animal testing for cosmetics and in the U.S. has been working at the state and federal level and have recently welcomed the reintroduction of the Federal Humane Cosmetics Act. Welcome, Monica. Hi, thank you. Oh, I can't believe you're still talking about this issue. It's been one of those things, I think a little bit like fur. If you've been around a while, you can see, oh my gosh, fur is gone. Well, then it's back. And it's the same with this. So give us a little bit of the history and where we are now. Yeah, well, I think your intro did a really good job of sort of framing the issue because it was because of people like you back in the 70s that started asking questions about how their cosmetics were made. And then throughout the 80s, you saw campaigns really starting to come forward where consumers demanding uh, cruelty-free cosmetics and and asking questions of cosmetic manufacturers about why they were doing these tests. And so what happened during the 80s is that, well, you saw a bunch more cruelty-free companies come out and start marketing their products and, you know, Uh, not using the animal tests and filling that niche market, but you also saw companies investing in new alternatives that didn't require animals. So modern technologies, that was, they started investing in that. And we're seeing the benefits of those two things come together now, where I think we will see an end to cosmetics testing for animals in our lifetime. And the two things are really the science and the passion have joined together right now where we're actually making a lot of headway on this issue now. I love that the science and the passion are also coming together with food. So a lot of progress on a lot of fronts. So what are you doing right now to, to make things different? So what always follows sort of the, you know, public policy is a combination of public opinion being at one place and then laws cementing in those you know, moral standards that that society has has adopted. The two really have to go together because in order to get a bill passed, you have to have a certain amount of public support. But in order to totally drive out something and make something a, you know, a solidified line in the sand, you have to have the laws in place where it says this is no longer, we've decided, decided this is no longer acceptable. It's no longer needed before you can actually move on. So where we are is um, several countries starting in the European Union, we had a a phase in of a ban on both the act of conducting animal tests for cosmetic purposes, as well as the sale of cosmetics that involved new animal testing. So those full bans came into place throughout the European Union in 2013. From there, the goal then was to start harmonizing regulations around the world. It doesn't really make sense just to move animal testing to other countries, and you really have to drive it out in every economic significant country in order for it to to end. So we started working around the world to start harmonizing those regulations. What for those who are new to this, do they need to understand about what goes on? Yeah, so for, 
you know, the classic animal tests, when people think about what those are, and those were developed, you know, 70 years ago, it was the only thing that was really available. What it involved, the, the classic test is like an eye irritation test where a rabbit would be restrained and the substance stripped into their eye, and then the rabbit would be monitored to see what the impact of that cosmetic ingredient had on the cornea and, and the eye irritation. For skin irritation, it was shaving the backs of rabbits or guinea pigs and rubbing the substance into their skin and, and looking for, and if the animal survived, they might be washed out, that's the term, and then used again or killed afterwards. And then the toxicity tests were about feeding the animals, you know, the substances and then dissecting their bodies later. These animal tests, they were never very good at predicting human response. Many of them were actually quite poor at predicting a human response, but in the very beginning of safety testing, that's what they had. The key thing is now we have new alternatives that use things like human skin cells that can be grown in the lab. You can buy kits called EpiSkin, you know, they're made by different companies. Um, hu reconstituted human corneas or a human cornea models can be used that really accurately predict what a substance will have on a human. So not only are they cruelty free, they don't involve animal use, they are more predictive. So they're better um, for the consumer and increasingly they're also cheaper. You can get the results in a day whereas the animal tests, depending on the test could take weeks to get the results back. So why are some companies still doing them? It seems so archaic, not to mention cruel. Yeah, well, more and more we are finding companies are coming around like for our most, um, uh, laws that we're working on now, we do have now the support of the Personal Care Products Council, which represents a large part of the industry. But animal testing still exists, mainly because um, in certain countries or in certain sectors, regulations might require the animal testing. Or in some cases, you know, a, a company or a um, manufacturer of an ingredient might just feel that's the safest, quickest way to get approval for their ingredient or it's just because it's what they've always been done. So it can happen because it's a checkbox approach to, to safety testing. So that's where when the law actually says, no, it's not allowed and we won't accept your animal testing data is where you really see the, the massive the change to finally drive that out. So tell us about what you're doing. What is the Humane Cosmetics Act in the US and uh, how close are we to having it pass? Right. Well, that's a good question. So um, the bill has been introduced starting in 2013. Once we, you know, after the European Union ban, we started talking to legislators in the U.S. about doing a similar uh, legislation for the U.S. So the first bill was introduced in about 2014, and it would end the sale of, it would end the act of animal testing as well as the sale of new animal tested cosmetics. So when we say new, it means from the date of enactment moving forward. There's nothing we can do about the animal tests that have already happened. That data is out there that's in existence, but moving forward, it would, companies would have to use the modern tests and not rely on animal testing. Um, federal bills take a long time. Um, unfortunately, the process in the US is really slow, especially on the federal level. So what we started doing is looking to the states because very often what happens in the US is um, federal action is informed by state action. And that's certainly been the case with the cosmetics bills. We started working in states and through the process of working on state legislation, we worked out some of the details and, and found some common ground with industry, got around some of our biggest obstacles. And now the agreements that we've worked out in those state bills have now been put into the federal bill. And we have, like once again, we talked about large parts of the industry now actually supporting the Humane Cosmetics Act, as well as our state models that we've been working on. 
So tell me about a state model. I mean, is it the kind of thing that people can say, I live in XX state and I'm very proud of what it's done on cosmetic testing? Yeah, so eight states now have, have passed legislation that follow the model legislation that we worked on with the PCPC. And model legislation just says, this is some legislation that has all the parts that make sense. It takes into um, consideration some of the complexities of the industry. Like sometimes a cosmetic might have a drug in it. And drugs right now still require animal testing. We want to work on that issue, but if we're just talking about cosmetics, we have to make an exemption for certain things like that, like a drug being inside of a cosmetic. So those sorts of things are worked out in the bill. And that's where having a piece of legislation that has already had been talked about, has been vetted, and has been passed in states becomes very useful because then it, it makes it easier for other states to do the same thing. Of course, the whole goal is to pass a federal law, and each time a state passes, it helps create that momentum for passing the federal law. And one of the main states we're working in this year is New York, because New York would be a huge um, incentive to pass the humane Chicago. It would, it would create a lot of momentum that we're asking for. But eight states have now passed the legislation, and we're hoping to have New York through this year. Oh, that's exciting. So for those of us who are just at the drugstore <laughs> wanting to buy something, it, I know that there are apps and there are all kinds of wonderful organizations trying to keep track of which cosmetic products are cruelty-free and which ones are also vegan. And then, you know, you can also get into the toxicity for humans. It can get a little bit complicated. So what would you recommend for somebody wanting to be sure that at the very least they weren't harming animals with their purchases? Yeah, so there's a lot of different labeling claims out there and you're right, it can get really confusing. There's lots of various types of bunnies and different things that are on, on um, uh, cosmetics products and it, it can get confusing on what does that really mean? Does it mean just the finished product wasn't tested but the ingredients were? Does it you know, mean that, you know, so various things. So without going into detail or criticizing other labeling schemes that are out there, we just recommend if you're looking on your product, look for a company that has been certified um, through the Leaping Bunny standard. So we run Leaping Bunny um, around the world. It's also run in the US. And that's really the strongest standard that you can look for is in, um, that means they, they meet and exceed, you know, the basic minimums about testing. So the final product not, uh, and the ingredients are in there and products weren't tested in order to enter foreign markets and things like that. I think the leaping bunny is sort of like the good housekeeping seal of the 21st century. It's just, it, it's very recognizable, certainly for, for vegans and animal rights people, but even people that just have, have some caring. Um, it's just so easy to look at the box and look for that. And then I know you can have the leaping bunny app and it goes into more detail. So thanks for that. Yeah, and once you kind of find your brands that you like, and if somebody has a brand that they really like, and you're like, oh, they aren't certified, it might mean that they just haven't applied. So it could, you could um, reach out to that company and ask them why they aren't leaving Bunny certified, and or if they've considered it. So it lets the company know that, oh, that's something that's important. Yeah. I always think about going to lunch with a non-vegetarian friend, and she invited a friend of hers, her college roommate, and introduced me as the vegan. And her friend said, well, I'm not vegan, but my cosmetics are. 
And that was a really interesting thing to know. It's like people are paying attention to some of these things and they might be coming to a, a more animal honoring way of life through detoured roads, but people are, are getting there. And this is certainly one of those ways. So Monica, I'm always fascinated by people who make this their life's work. So tell us about you. How did you become the person that you are? Um, I think it's, you know, for some people, it's an aha moment where suddenly they get something happens and they get involved in animal rights. Other people, it's something that was always in them and they've always been an animal lover. I am the the first, the, the second kind. I have always just uh, been in, had an affinity from animals, was always running little campaigns as young as like 10 years old. I was making posters about adopting from the shelters and pinning them up at grocery stores. And I had a little petition going in junior high against um, a particular cosmetic company that I won't name now, you know, asking them to not test on animals. And I ran my little, you know, high school animal rights groups. It was something that was always um, kind of justice for animals was something that was always um, part of something I was interested in. I became vegetarian when I was 14, you know, all these sorts of things. That's so cool. Where did you grow up doing all this stuff? So I grew up in the Sierra foothills of California. And um, on a little farm. So, you know, I was, you know, around family members who hunted, we raised pigs for slaughter and, you know, all these things, but I was very um, exposed to, you know, things that now I don't uh, agree with, but in some ways, maybe that's why I sort of became the way I was because I also, you know, was in close contact with farmed animals and animals of every kind and learned to know them as individuals and, and care about their plight. Yes. And I think it also helps in communicating with people who are in that industry. If we're not just coming from completely outside of it, like, you know, who are you to come from this other planet and yeah. tell me how to do things. But if you've had that experience, that's, uh, that's very, very helpful. So speaking of talking with people who see things differently, there's this whole big cosmetics industry that has always done things the way they've always done them. And I remember back in 2012 or so, it looked like all the big companies were going cruelty-free and then China said, no, you can't sell to us unless you're testing. And it, it they just turned back on a dime, which has always made me very fond of the companies that have always had this kind of ethic that have been cruelty-free from the very beginning. And yet it's also just so helpful to be able to walk into the corner store and, and buy what you need to buy. So tell us what the cosmetic industry's response has been to this act that you're working on in Congress and to this movement in general. Well, it's been varied. Like you've mentioned, there's some companies that have been on board with um, fighting against animal testing for a long time. I mean, back in the 80s, we partnered with uh, the BUAV, partnered with, you know, before it was Cruelty for International, with the Body Shop. And we've continued to work alongside the Body Shop on campaigns to end animal testing. So there were companies like that that have always kind of been on the right side of history. And then there's other um, companies that came around later. And like I said, they, and they were some of the companies that, on, that invested in these alternatives. They could see the writing on the wall. So in the last 10 years, it's become a real interesting kind of turn where some of our former adversaries, we now find ourselves on the same side. And in certain cases, um, we're standing side by side, explaining to regulators that you don't need to require the animal tests anymore, because here we are with our scientists and their scientists showing you that the alternatives 
are better and we can prove product safety without harming animals and you know stop asking us for the animal testing data you know it's so interesting to listen to someone like you who is deeply involved in this work and just see how slowly it goes you know it it seems to me this should have happened years ago but like so many other things it's a very complex slow moving project process but how wonderful it's going to be to be able to celebrate its end. And that's something I think that we can actually see in sight. So what can individuals do? You've got all this great legislative stuff going on. What can we do at home? Yeah, well, they can continue to do what, what consumers have, have always done, which is demanding their cruelty-free cosmetics and you know voting with their dollars and letting the companies that they are buying from know that it's important to them. That's you know really what started the whole thing. And then, of course, they can ask their legislator, their U.S. their Senate, their U.S. senator and their U.S. representative to become a co-sponsor of the Humane Cosmetics Act. And we have um, an action alert on our website where they can instantly send an email. But a phone call is really effective as well. Just make a simple phone call. They'll have a staff that will answer their phone and you tell them your constituent, this is where you live, and that you would really like um, your representative to become a co-sponsor of the Humane Cosmetics Act. And there's a bill in the Senate as well. So they can do that. Now the House bill does have like, like 147, maybe 170 by now co-sponsors. So they might already be a co-sponsor. And so if that's the case, then you call them and, and thank them. It's um, very rare that a legislator gets thanked for doing things. They're usually being told what they're doing wrong or what people want them to do, but that can be useful too, to let them know that you're paying attention. And do we find out on your website, which is uh, cruelty-free-international.org, uh, is that where we find out if, if our representatives are sponsors already? Um, well, you can find an action alert. And if you want to find if they are, you can look the bill up on the um, federal. That's a little more of a step, but you can look it up and it'll show the co-sponsors on the federal lead. But if you call and ask or if you send an email, sometimes they'll just email you back. They're not going to be mad that you asked them to co-sponsor bill if they're already on. They're going to be happy that they're able to tell you that they did. You okay. know, if that's the case, don't worry about that. And right on our homepage right now, they'll be able to find the action alert link through for the Humane Cosmetics Act because we have a latest news piece about the New York bill, which also if there's New Yorkers listening, they can log on and take action to ask their state legislator to support the New York Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act. Okay, well, I'm sitting here on Manhattan Island, so <laughs> that's an action step I can take. So I know that you guys have a couple of other bills. So the one that's hearts is really long. So you can tell us what it's really called and what it's about. Okay. Yeah, that's the Humane and Existing Alternatives to Animal Testing and Sciences Act. So we just abbreviate it HEARTS. People love acronyms. So it's the HEARTS Act. And what that will do, that has to do with uh, medical testing, like um, NIH funded research. So what it will do is prioritize the use of humane alternatives in NIH funded research, which is National Institutes of Health. It's all taxpayer funded research. They do a lot, fund a lot of animal testing. So what the Hearts Act would do was, is ask that they prioritize the many humane alternatives there are to animal research out there and make sure that um, those methods are being used before resorting to animal tests. So you talked about how these newer alternative methods are actually better in terms of cosmetic testing. They protect humans better as well as saving animals. 
I think that argument is a little bit tougher when we get into the scientific research. So how do you respond to people who say, you know, that's just where I get off. You have to do that. Well, it's okay if they want to get off at that point, but I think that they can at least agree that when there is an alternative to the use of animals, of course it should be used. And that's definitely the case. We have many areas of research where like brain imaging can be used to replace invasive brain research on monkeys. You can, you know, use MRIs. And there's many areas of human disease research like Alzheimer's and AIDS where the animal tests have almost 100% failed to give us any sort of treatments. And so we really need to be putting our money into the alternative so that we can get faster treatments for those very important diseases or at least use every tool in the toolbox. And many of those tools are non-animal alternatives. So we should be funding those. And anytime there is an alternative that um, can be used, of course, it should be used. And that's really what the Hearts Ask is asking for. Wonderful. I love how you think. Now, speaking of acronyms, we've got another one, and that is CARE. Tell us about that yeah. one. So that one's a little easier. Um, that's the Companion Animal Release from Experiments Act. And that one would require that any laboratory that takes money from the National Institutes of Health, so a taxpayer-funded laboratory, would have to have adoption policies in place for any dog, cat, or rabbit that is no longer used for research so that that animal could be adopted out into a home. They're healthy and able to have a life after the lab. It would require that they have a policy in place and that they report on the number of animals that are um, released for adoption. I know people who have adopted beagles because they're so mm-hmm. docile. They're often used in experiments. And you know, the love bond really with any adopted animal is so strong, but what I'm told about those who've been in laboratories, it's, it's just a level of healing that most of us could never understand. So thank you for all this great work that you're doing. So in our last couple of minutes, just, you can look beyond cosmetics. You can look wherever you want in the whole world of human animal relationships. What has you excited and happy right now? Well, all the progress that we're making, um, this is one area that's really sort of taking off in, in like I said, because the science has really, once again, caught up with the passion. There's lots of good, it's a really exciting time to be working on this issue with all the new innovative um, science that's out there. That's not only, like I said, replacing animals, but creating um, new medicine, ways that we're going to have new medicines and new treatments for, for humans and new ways to protect the environment without harming animals. It must be very exciting to be working in the position that you're working in right now. I think sometimes about those craftsmen and the painters who worked on the cathedrals in Europe, and they knew that it wasn't going to be finished in their lifetime, but somebody would finish it. And one day there would be a cathedral. And I feel like so many people have worked for so long on some of these animal issues. And what you're doing now is like, yeah, you're going to do it. You're going to finish this off. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I was just talking the other day how it's it can be frustrating because it's um, animal advocacy work or maybe any ad- advocacy work is like an iceberg. The pe- piece that people see that's above the water is what's underneath it. All this work that has gone in over the years and all the different efforts is what is actually raising it above the water. But the, the piece that you see is is just the tip, you know, the, all the work underneath it, nobody sees that it's been going on all these years is there. Oh, well, Monica, thank you so much for all that you and, and your colleagues are doing. And, and thank you for giving us this information about ways that we can help. So 
everybody, isn't this wonderful? Isn't it great that some things are happening and some things are changing and we have a lot to celebrate. So stay with us through these messages from the good people at Unity Online Radio. And we're going to be back with a way that animals just might be getting their day in court. Stay with us. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Practical spirituality. Positive messages. This is UnityOnlineRadio.org. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back, everybody, to the second half of this episode of the Main Street Vegan podcast. I do want to give a shout out to our wonderful sponsor, and that is Compliment. These are supplements that are made by vegans for vegans to complement your already really, really good diet. Their website is lovecompliment.com. And if you put Main Street in all capitals into the discount box, you'll save yourself some money if you decide to buy some compliment products. So do check them out. I also want to um, invite you to check out an article that is currently up on medium.com. It goes along with the topic that we're going to be discussing in this half of the program. And it's actually written by another person who attended Main Street Vegan Academy. Her name is Sandy Nasanowitz. And it's a piece about the silent treatment. She says the silent treatment, the most difficult quiver, um, the arrow in the quiver, sorry. So um, that's a kind of abuse. And we're going to be talking about abuse in this half hour, 
not animal abuse, which we talk about a lot, but about humans who are subject to abuse, sometimes from the people who are supposed to love them most. So we will be talking now with someone else who went through Main Street Vegan Academy, and she is Abby Nelson, a PhD candidate in social work at Michigan State University. She has 15 years as a licensed clinical social worker, and as a therapist, she specializes in treating trauma from a holistic perspective. And she's spent most of her career working with intimate partner violence and sexual assault survivors here in the U.S. as well as in Mexico and Guatemala. And she's also a passionate, ethical, raw vegan. Welcome, Abby. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. Well, it's wonderful to have you because I think on a program like Main Street Vegan, we don't talk a lot or perhaps enough about the suffering that humans can experience sometimes at the hands of, of other humans. And yet veganism is about ahimsa. It's about nonviolence and, and respect for everybody. So what led you to this inquiry professionally and to going on to get your PhD? Yeah. So um, I got my master's in social work in, in Texas and I stayed working at Tex in Texas for the first part of my career. And um, I like to say that my clients informed my specialty. So I started seeing a lot of um, survivors of intimate partner violence and sexual assault. And I realized that the modalities that I had been trained in um, were really great, uh, more of the traditional modalities, cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, um, were helping my clients to a point. But because a lot of the uh, intimate partner violence trauma actually happens to the body, and we know, you know there's some great research now from Vanderkolt, um, for those, uh, a lot of people are familiar with the Body Keeps the Score book is pretty popular now. And we have so much research showing us that trauma is actually held in the body. So a lot of these modalities that I had been trained in as a therapist were really helping my clients on the mental level, but they weren't really helping them heal on the spiritual and the physical level. And so as a therapist, I realized I really needed to look for more holistic modalities that really helped these clients. Um, seek healing on all three of those levels, the body, the mind, and the spirit. So as a therapist, I then became tr trained in a bunch of different um, holistic um, interventions. So tell us about some of those. It's interesting to me when you talked about that most therapy deals with the mind, and we always think is the mind is the bridge between the body and the spirit, but you're kind of implying that the body and the spirit are connected in their own way without so much of having to start with the mind. Yes. And I mean, there's a, because they're all connected, like you say, you know, and, and the holistic viewpoint definitely understands that none of them exist without the other. Right. So even a lot of these techniques that I am trained in psychotherapeutic yoga, a lot of, um, experiential techniques, um, so, uh, somatic processing, even EMDR, which is eye movement, uh, desensitization, reprocessing therapy, a lot of it, you might even start the modality using a mind as an entry, you know, like using talking and using these kind of things, but then you would move into different aspects in order to help the client be able to really get to the subconscious mind, not just the conscious mind, and then really move into the body and the spirit in order to have a more holistic way of healing. 
So what percentage of, of um, social workers and psychologists take this holistic approach? It is becoming more researched, okay? And so we have the most research that, of, and of interventions actually used with trauma survivors of meditation and yoga. So those are kind of the two modalities that have been used the most so far that have shown effectiveness for actual IPV survivors. IPV is short for intimate partner violence. Um, but, and, but there's, especially for social workers, there is only, um, like a handful of programs that actually even have like a, a class. So not all programs teach, um, their, their students are going through about these modalities. When I was writing a paper on this, I only found one social work program that had any kind of like certification that you could get and like integrative wellness. So it is growing, but it's still definitely a need. And it was something that when I, I worked at, before I went back to get my PhD, I worked at several community clinics and I, and in those settings, even though I was able to bring forth research and show like there isn't, there is a need for this, there's a lot of pushback. And a lot of times insurance won't bill for the type of modalities that I was wanting to use with my clients, which is one of the reasons why to get to your other question, why I decided to seek my PhD was I really wanted to figure out Number one, how could we develop more holistic interventions? And number two, how can we um, create an infrastructure to fund more of these um, modalities for survivors of trauma? So tell us about the yoga. You mentioned, I don't know if you called it therapeutic yoga, but I think so many of my listeners are, are yoga practitioners and probably meditators. So how does this differ from just the kind of yoga that we would get at our local yoga studio? Yeah. So the trauma, it's also sometimes psychotherapeutic yoga is the term that I used, but it's often can be, you might have heard the term like trauma focused yoga, trauma informed yoga. This is something that there's a lot of different certifications out there now, but it hasn't been quite um, regulated at like a national level yet, um, because it is, is kind of new. So I, when I was, I kind of had trouble, I got certified, let's see, like eight years ago now. And at that time I was kind of like looking all over the country, you know, like, where can I find this? And what does this mean? And it's grown a lot in the past eight years, but common components of this, when you're using yoga with trauma survivors, you want to make sure that it's very, um, you create a safe space. So that would mean that you wouldn't use um, hands-on assist. Like you might get if you went to some other yoga studio because you don't know, that could be a trigger for some of the trauma survivors. So you use a lot of, you do a lot more guiding with your voice. You use um, language where you ask people. So instead of saying like, put your arms up, you would say, I now invite you um, to lift your arms. And so just using a lot more, um, being careful with the language and really creating a safe space right from the beginning. Um, and letting, uh, the people know that, um, you know, at any time that they don't have to do what's offered. And then the type of yoga that I was, that I was trained in, it was actually to be used 
with a therapist and a client one-on-one. And so in that context, I wouldn't offer it as a class. I would offer it with a client knowing their particular issue. And then I had been trained in particular poses. Um, For example, if I had a client that was dealing with anxiety, I had been trained in a variety of different poses and ways to modify those poses to help that client learn that, to use those as actual coping skills. So just like you might go to a doctor and say, okay, I'm feeling this way and they give you medicine. The client would come to me and say, I'm feeling this way. And I would say, okay, well, when that happens, these are certain things you can do to help yourself be more grounded, to help yourself with your breathing, to help yourself, you know, physically regulate some of these emotions. So when we think about these various holistic techniques, they seem to be used more often, or maybe there's just been more research done for trauma survivors than, you know, your garden variety of depression, anxiety, other kinds of things that people suffer with and seek help for. Why is that? It goes back to kind of my, what I was originally talking about, about the a lot of the research done by Vanderkolt and Siegel, which really talks about that because when we have a traumatic event that happens to us, our brains do not have the ability in that moment to completely process it through and let it go. And so because of that, oftentimes it will get trapped in our body in some way. And then if not treated can come out in chronic pain, um, can come out as, um, you know, it, it manifests in different ways for different people. But um, the only way to really get at that is to create interventions that are going to help um, process, like I was saying, through the subconscious and through the body, um, which will use the mind. Because again, I really like that you brought that up, Victoria, that it's not that we're saying the mind's no longer important, right? But how do we activate the spiritual side and the physical side with the mind um, to help more of this integrative healing? And this Mm -hmm. spiritual aspect also is something that academia um, has pushed back upon, you know, through the years, because, you know, being more of a, a ethereal thing, hard to operationalize these kind of things. But recently, um, there has been, there was a book written by a professor from Yale called the, um, awakened brain where they have now determined, you know, not connected with religion necessarily, but just that the human brain, they've done research to show that we literally have a part of our brain that's wired for spiritual connection. And so with that new research that has really helped um, a lot of the academics that were kind of like, you know, we just kind of want to throw that to the side, really be more open to, okay, how might this need to be a part of a lot of the, the, um, the things that we're looking at. And when you use the term violence, intimate partner violence, I mean, I mentioned Sandy Nasanowitz's article about the silent treatment, which seems like a form of violence and words can certainly seem like violence. Do you work on all of that or just physical survivors of physical abuse? Yeah. So, um, the research that I have done, as well as the interventions that I'm developing right now are for, so intimate partner violence is kind of um, in uh, underneath the umbrella term of domestic violence. So domestic violence would be any kind of abuse, which could be physical, psychological, 
now even we put under their technological um, because sometimes it can be, you know, using Facebook, using Instagram to stalk people. Um, and so uh, spiritual, physical, emotional, uh, technological, any of those things. So like you said, the neglect would go under there, which the silent treatment sounds like it would fall, you know, a little bit more in the kind of the neglect side of things, but also in emotional abuse. Um, and then intimate partner violence would be under that because domestic violence could also include um, violence against children, you know, violence between siblings, anybody that is in a relationship. But intimate partner violence is specifically talking about um, partner, partner violence. Um, typically, you know, my research focuses on 18 and above um, females. So their partner could be another female, it could be another male, but that those are the survivors that I'm particularly looking at. And when you sent me the information about your work and what you do, you, you called it holistic healing for vegan survivors of intimate partner violence. So how is your work kind of focusing on vegan women? Mm -hmm. ah. Yeah, so this is the really um, this is the exciting part for me, as, as you mentioned, being an ethical vegan myself, um, when, as you can imagine, when I was working at these community clinics, um, I was seeing a lot of the connection between, um, ne negative consequences of a poor diet and that affecting mental health. But whenever I would try to bring forth suggestions and ideas, you know, when I became certified um, for, through your program to do vegan lifestyle coaching, you know, there was a lot of pushback um, of that, that like, well, why just, you need to treat them on like with the modalities, you know, and that kind of thing. So that was another thing going into my PhD. I wanted to really start to open up this research more about like, why do we need to include um, what people are eating as a part of this discussion? And so there currently are no, um, there are no interventions that, that use holistic modalities in addition to including a plant-based or vegan diet with that. And so my ultimate goal is to be able to develop an intervention, recognizing that the eating is not the only aspect, but that if we do not include what the person is actually putting in their body, then how can we call it completely holistic? Because we know that these oppressive, um, you know, there is a, a oppression that goes along with animal agriculture and what we put in our bodies if we choose to eat you know, animal-based products, could that be also affecting the healing process that someone is going from, going through? Because when they're exiting a, a domestic violence or intimate partner violence relationship, they're exiting an oppressive system. But if they are continuing to ingest oppressive materials, might that be affecting their healing? So what my research is focusing on right now is really diving into deep with IPV survivors who are vegans to explore what is the healing benefit of a vegan diet through this process of healing um, from being a survivor of intimate partner violence with the intention that if we can have research to back up that, look, this 
lifestyle is, can be a, a main part of the healing process, then potentially we could have the evidence to start including it with some of these other modalities like yoga, like meditation that we know are also helping survivors. And do you have any information on whether what was written about a very long time ago, I think as far back as the 1800s, about that meat eating and certainly working in a slaughterhouse or, or doing violent acts towards animals encouraged people to do the same sort of things to humans? Is that more folklore or is there really something to it? No, for sure. There are studies um, that are, that have looked at, I mean, we know there is a high connection between those that work in slaughterhouses and intimate partner violence and violence against children. And, you know, you know, when we, th- when you think about like different areas of research, one of the areas I looked into first, which my, I was more passionate about IPV survivors, which is where I'm going first is at the same token, um, eventually wanting to look at what are uh, batterers and perpetrators eating and how that might be affecting um, how they're um, acting with their partners as well. Because like you said, we have the research that shows people who are in slaughterhouses. Um, we also have, have a small body of research that has looked at prisoners and their diet and kind of the aggression and how switching from a meat-eating diet to a plant-based diet has helped decrease some of the anger and aggression. There was one study done with, with inmates about that. So I definitely think that's a whole nother area, right? So I, you know, right now I'm focusing on actual sur- female survivors, but then it affects the perpetrators as well um, and could be looked at from that angle. Do you have any research or, or even anecdotes about women or others who have been abused because of being vegan? Um, I don't have any formal research on that. I do have, um, like you were saying, anecdotally, you know, um, I have worked with several women who, especially if they've been in because a lot of times intimate partner violence, you know, there's, it's a, there can be a lot of it about power and control. And so I, I'm, I'm thinking of a particular client where, um, they went through the transition of being, uh, they were, you know, just standard American diet to vegetarian, to vegan while in this intimate partner violence relationship. And so the partner was not open to this and began to use it as, like, um, like a ploy of, of abuse, right? Like teasing them. Like once the partner understood that they were bothered by animals being hurt and bothered by them eating meat, then they would kind of like throw it in their face and just use it as another tactic to degrade, you know, emotionally abuse and those kind of things. So I think that's what, that's the kind of thing you're, you know, that you're, that you're thinking about. And, um, and yeah, I mean, a whole study could be done just on that, right? Like, in the actual people who are vegans in these relationships, does the partner use that or not? I mean, I only know of two clients I've had myself, but I don't have like, you know, a big body of work to look at, but that would be really interesting to look at. Mm, That's absolutely fascinating. So, so we've looked at the survivors and we've looked a little bit at the perpetrators. Now let's look at you and, and the role of, of the therapist or the counselor in this sort of thing. So how will a vegan perspective 
add to what's currently known about holistic psychotherapy? Yeah. So one, uh, there are actually, there's like vegan sociological societies. There's um, a vegan psychological association, but there's not, um, yet, and this is part of what I'm wanting to start, there's not a vegan social worker um, association. And um, I have found that the vegan, that the vegan values and ethics align very closely with the social work values and ethics. Although a lot of social workers aren't aware or not ready, you know, not quite ready to really accept, accept that. And so if we can, um, you know, help help um, therapists and social workers when they're learning about multiple oppressions, because in social work education, you know, we learn about multiple oppressions and intersectionality, but we do not bring into that perspective, um, you know, any talk about, you know, animals and how that also is another type of oppression that's going on. And so that's where I really feel, you know, I'm trying to advocate in social work education that um, that aspect be brought into the intersectionality of oppressions discussion and to really help us think, even for those that don't call themselves ethical vegans, we have enough research to know that diet affects mood, right? And affects how people feel. So even if you, if you don't agree with the vegan side of things, you, it seems like you, uh, we could help more um, therapists and more helping professionals understand that connection between what someone eats and how they feel, and then try to figure out how we can address that as part of the modalities that we're offering. This is so fascinating. So in just the very few minutes that we have left, tell us about your project and if any survivors of intimate partner violence, or I guess you'd say anyone who's undergoing it now, I suppose. Right. Too, yeah. So you don't would like I, to participate. When I, when I say the term survivor, you could be currently in an intimate partner violence relationship or have exited. So I'm using survivor, you know, not just that you have to have be done with it. Um, and if, yeah, if you would be willing, I'm going, I'm, I'm not officially recruiting yet because I have not gone through, um, I haven't gotten official IRB approval, but that will be happening, um, this spring. And hopefully I will be able to start my interviews this summer. So if you are a vegan and, um, and, and have been in an IPV relationship or are currently in one, then and be, would be willing to share your experience. I would love to have you participate in that. And I think you're going to put my email on the uh, show notes. I will absolutely put it in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. But for anybody who happens to be able to write it down now, <laughs> uh, Abby Sumrall. So this is Abby Nelson we're hearing from, but I think it's... Uh, uh, previous name, A-B-B-I-E-S-U-M-R-A-L-L-3-0 at gmail.com. And again, that will be in, in the show notes. So just in our last couple of minutes, if somebody is wanting to incorporate some of these holistic modalities into their lives right now, what are some ones to start with? Definitely breathing is going to be your number one. And I know that might sound super simple, but we have a lot of research that shows the benefits of breathing and how that can really help with that body, mind, spirit connection. So the simplest thing is just inhaling for four and exhaling for eight, making sure you're exhaling longer than you're inhaling. And then if you live in a city um, where they have, you know, 
um, holistic things. Like you could look for a trauma informed yoga class. Um, you could look for a meditation class, you know, other things are Qigong, even art, dance, anything such as this, that really gets you out of your head and into your body, um, can help, help, help you start integrating some of that. And of course, you know, if you're needing therapy, looking for someone who's trained, uh, specifically in treating trauma and using trauma informed modalities. Well, Abby, it has been such a pleasure to catch up with you and learn about your very important work. You are a busy woman with a a little child and one on the way and your raw food diet. Oh my gosh, you have that raw food glow. You are just (laughs) sparkling, I guess, pregnancy and raw food together. It's uh, (laughs) that's exactly it couldn't have put it better myself. So everybody, thank you so much for listening today. And thanks to our friends at Unity Online Radio who have been behind us for low these 10 years. And if you're watching on YouTube, then please subscribe to the channel. Victoria Moran NYC would love to have you there. And to everybody, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.